American woman, stay away from me. American woman, mama, let me be, because I'm listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is John McAdam. I think if you give us 60 minutes, we will give you a raw bone podcast. And I've said this before, but sure, there are other podcasts, other good wrestling podcasts, but are they wicked good? Let's ask this dude. No! Well, he seems to have the definitive answer. And before I hand the stick over to Sean Goodwin to tell us about our social media page, uh, let's talk about we're recording this on Thursday, June 11th. So it's coming out fresh. Mr. Wrestling 2 passed away yesterday and very sad. He was always pushed in the late 70s when I first started getting the wrestling magazines as the top star in Georgia a legitimate contender for the NWA title. And then he was on my TV screen every week when it was Georgia Championship Wrestling time. So, and that was both in 81 and 87, even a little bit into 82. Uh, And then the WWF bought Georgia and Mr. Wrestling 2 went along to the WWF. And I don't think they even put him on TV once. It was kind of an embarrassment. Sean Goodwin, any Mr. Wrestling 2 memories you would like to share with us? Top of the card for 25 years. Uh, He's top of the card in the early uh, 60s in um, Tennessee. Top of the card in the early 70s in um, Florida. Against, he had a feud with uh, Buddy Colt. Buddy Colt broke his arm. This was as Johnny Walker. Top of the card in the tag team with uh, 1 and 2 against the Andersons in Georgia. He had a great feud with Dick Slater in the late 70s. Into the 80s. I mean, the only reason he really wore the mask was because he looked like he was 72, you know, in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, so, I, as I've often said, he looked exactly like Red Foreman from that 70s show. It's, it's the same guy. So, um, I'm convinced. Just get a picture of the two of them together. But a top flight performer, he, you know, he main evented in four, five, six different areas. Mid-South, too. He had a massive run with Magnum TA. Uh, yeah, it's really, I mean, I, I guess by, you know. I guess after being on top for 22, three years, he can get old. He did. Um, but I've never seen that. We, uh, yeah. I mean, we uh, basically, yeah, we, uh, we, we caught the end of him, unfortunately. Probably his, I mean, there's still some stuff in, from the, if you look at YouTube, the stuff with him against Colt in Florida. But I have a feeling we, don't, we never really got to see the best of him until the end. We just got to see the end of it, which was still pretty good. No, I mean, he, you know, he started a new career as, you know, a new identity as a wrestler when he was like 45 or, you know, close to over 40. I know that. And Magnum TA was not a star when he started feuding with Mr. Wrestling 2. And he made Mr. Wrestling, I think he helped make Magnum TA a star. And he showed Crockett and Dusty that, hey, look, this guy can be a star. Well, they brought in, I'm convinced they brought in two for this very reason. Was that they're like, you know what, I, I got a guy I want to kind of, you know, bring along and tutor. I believe it was Jerry Jarrett's idea to give him the mask. He wanted to bring in, um, he wanted to bring in Tim Woods, but he couldn't. So uh, for whatever reason. So he's like, OK, I'll call up uh, Johnny Walker. And uh, he agreed to it. So then they kind of brought them both together. But it's uh, I mean, he I guess the only thing was, like I said, he had that kind of red form and feel to it with that 70 show. But I mean, you know, put your foot in your ass, stuff like that. But he, you know, I, it was believable. And, you know, how many other uh, can say that they have a president as their biggest fan, at least a president's mother? <laughs> None that I know of. I mean, he, the, the idea of a wrestler getting his picture taken with President Carter was uh, mind-spinning back in the day. 
Yeah, in gimmick. Mind you. Oh, yeah. yeah, the Secret Service allowed that. Yeah, so, I mean, like I said, the guy was, the guy was a very, very big deal. And I think his best work, if we end up finding it, would end up being in the early 70s with Tim, Tim Woods against the Andersons. But unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to see any of that. No, unfortunately not. I mean, VCRs are so expensive. So, Sean, there's a rumor out there that this show has a Facebook page. It does. You got over 800 uh, fine folks over there. There is no arguing. Arguing. There's no rule about it. We just don't argue. Talk about old school wrestling, what we like, old. We have old put up clips, videos. We have the occasional uh, viewing party that you uh, that you set up all the time. Yes. every uh, Usually every week we have a viewing party. We didn't last week, and we're not going to this week because there are WWE live events. But yeah, we have the viewing parties, and we also have a fictitious fantasy tournament, the 1985 Crockett Cup, with wrestlers from every promotion. So 85 was a great year for tag team wrestling. We encourage you to visit our Facebook group and be part of it. It's a party in your little box. There you go. So... Speaking of our Facebook group, uh, as we occasionally do, as I, as I do as often as I can, we try to incorporate the listeners into the show. But this time we just ran wild and had a, uh, a blanket uh, mail, what is it, a mailbag episode where you guys get to ask us some questions. The first one is from a friend of mine, friend of the show, Jesus Salas Rodriguez. Sean, who is your favorite booker of all time and who is the worst? So uh, the first name that came to my, uh, my, my head was Jerry Jarrett. And uh, then I'm starting to think about the names. I thought of Bill Watts. And it starts to dawn on me who all these guys are trained by, which is Eddie Graham. Yep. They're all from the Grahams. I mean, I, I mean, basically your modern idea of booking from the 70s on was developed by Eddie Graham. And basically developed that. He's like the, uh, the, the Bill Walsh with the West Coast offense. And all his uh, coordinators go all over the place. You know, that's what happened with Eddie. All of his guys end up taking over territories and they kind of brought, you know, variations of that style to wherever they, they went. I mean, he's certainly the most influential. There's no question about that. But, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, even, you know, again, people remember the end because that's what's on tape. But if you look, I mean, he was there since the, you know, I think he was running it since in, in the 60s at some point. I'm not sure exactly when he took over from the Cowboy. But, he, you know, into the 60s, throughout the 70s, it was all top flight stuff up until the very end when they were, you know, uh, everything started going national and they started getting a talent drain like everyone else did. Uh, I, yeah, I, he's, he's my guy. All right. And that makes total sense. By the way, when Sean says take over for the Cowboy, that's Cowboy Luttrell, not Luttrell. Cowboy Bill Watts. Yeah, right? yeah. Oh, one other. I actually answer the second part of the worst. Anybody with the last name committee. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I think booking committees are useful, but you have to have when? someone who makes the ultimate decision. When? When has a booking committee ever produced a re- like a reasonable product? 89 NWA. That was mostly Flair. That, but that's the thing. That's exactly what I'm saying. Like, Flair made the, ultimately made the decision uh, eventually, but he had people in the room discussing the issues with him. I think, I think that's well, good. Yeah, but the way that's set up is similar to the way that Eddie Graham set it up for years. He never did the direct booking. He would have, like, for example, the Dusty turn would have been Bill Watts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, Dusty turned face. So, but uh, as Watts would end up doing, and this is another thing he took from Eddie, where he would be like the executive producer and he would have fresh bookers come in all the time. That exactly. kept the thing fresh. 
Jerry Jarrett did the same thing where he would switch with Lawler and Dundee and all these guys. But so, I mean, that's, but yeah, that there's still that you would always have that guy and guys underneath it. That's fine. I'm saying like a committee where there's like, maybe, you know, there's no guy in that case. Rick was clearly the man. No, definitely. I mean, if you have to vote, you know, you got nine guys in the room and you're voting like, okay, five to four, we're going to do this. It's like, that, that doesn't work. I'm with you. Best booker for me and worst booker might be the same person. And just to shed some light on this, I'm not picking Dusty Rhodes for either one, but Dusty was really good when he first started in Crockett, 84, 85. He took over, he rearranged everything. He had the guts to change a lot of stuff. By the time he was out of there in 88, Dusty was now terrible. So, and my vote is not Dusty. My vote for best and worst booker, get ready, is Eddie Gilbert. I thought Eddie Gilbert was phenomenal in the 80s. Yeah, did he hot shot shot a little bit, pardon the pun? Yes, he did. But at the same time, he put out episode after episode of great television, both in Watts' UWF, then in Continental, and then 1990 in Memphis. I think he at least was uh, assisting the booker. Then Eddie changed. I don't know what happened. I don't know if he just like fell out of love with the business or whatever, but there was a fiasco in Lowell, Massachusetts in 1991. He was supposed to come in and book for this guy, Gordon Scazzeri, who was putting out uh, a television pilot. And Eddie wound up like not even getting on the flight to Dallas uh, from Dallas. Didn't come in, just like uh, faxed him a bunch of stuff that didn't make sense. Basically, I think Eddie laughed and took this guy's money. And then comes the ECW booking in 1992, or I think it was 1993. Yeah, it was when Eddie was booking, and it was just terrible. And you could tell Eddie was burned out on the business. So my best and worst is the same guy. By the way, if you, you want to check out the 93 stuff, there's stuff out there from the old Eastern Championship Wrestling before Paul took over. I think the first thing that Paul did was like Summer Sizzler in uh, like late 93 or maybe like something in, you know, somewhere in there. But yeah, there are a couple episodes from the early, you know, when they were doing it from Mike Schmidt's bar or whatever. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it was, yeah, it, it was rough. Uh, it was. And Eddie, you know, it was funny. You watch the shows. And everything, like, you can tell when Eddie's gone because the shows were, and this is what I didn't like, everything was about Eddie Gilbert. Uh, he was doing these rather ridiculous King of Philadelphia skits yeah. that he was. Like Terry Funk. Yeah, and, and then one day, all of a sudden, Eddie was gone. He went from being on screen like 100% of the time to gone. And that's when Paulie took over, and he started doing cool stuff like Public Enemy. By the way, I, a little off track. Friend of the show, Brian Cauley, like asked what we would do with the AWA in '86 on the Facebook page. Do stuff like Paulie was doing in ECW. Don't worry about getting into a bidding war for Barry Windham or whoever. Don't take other guys. Create your own stars, and that's what Paulie did. I thought Paulie did a great job at first as well. A great job doesn't sum it up. What the job that he did was a miracle in '94. Yeah. Uh, Look at the. It's it's hard for me to really get too upset about Eddie. His booking, he probably just loved because he's looking at this roster like, my God, this roster was bad. The public, the what he did with the public enemy may be the single greatest booking job involving a team ever. They have no business being on the top of the card anywhere, as was shown once they went into WCW. 
Uh, but it was the, the the genius of what he did and what Watts also did, but he didn't really need to do it. But Paul became, you know, got great at it was the way he cut his TV show was that he would cut the matches in such a way that he would mine the 90 seconds of a decent Sabu match that actually went on for 25 minutes. And, you know, it, it, everything looked much better yeah. on TV than it ended up being in person. He was able to elevate everybody for the most part in that era i mean finally he just i mean there's only so many times like earl campbell you, you can only carry the theme so long that when he's finally going to collapse and you start running out of talent but at that like that 94 up until like 95 this was he was a genius he was i mean this and it's, it's been said so so often that it's it's a cliche it kind of doesn't hold up today but 1994 we well, all liked it and that's well, i what think 95 cool. does i think 95 will hold up today a little bit uh, I think that was a compelling, fun TV show. Uh, and you had guys who would go on to be pretty big stars. Yeah, totally. You know, I mean, Eddie, uh, you had uh, Guerrero, you had Malenko. That's where they started their series that went on to WCW. You know, he's persona non grata now, but Benoit was there. I hate him, but a lot of people liked him. Shane, Terry was there all the time. Yeah, I mean, you had some talent there. and It, it, it was a pretty good, it was a well-done TV show, I thought. Even the crap was fun. Oh, definitely. Speaking of Chris Benoit, Ron Gamble asks, after recent, and then he says, within the past 10 years events, most people have problems watching Bill Cosby or Louis C.K. from years past. Besides Chris Benoit, are there any other wrestlers that make you a little uncomfortable after recent revelations of their personal life? Sean, the floor is yours. I call this the Wade Boggs, Larry Bird, Roger Clemens rule. I learned this at 10. Don't look up or read about your heroes when you're a kid. Just don't do it. You're going to find something you don't like. There's no question about it. So I basically try to ignore everything when it comes to these guys. Obviously, Benoit is on the list. I can't even look at it, but I mean, that's, you, you couldn't avoid that. I don't go out of my way for Buck Zumhoff or uh, Bulldog Brower matches, as we've heard many times here. So that's not a problem. Um, I'm usually fast forwarding that nonetheless. Yeah, uh, but I, 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 yeah, I, I. This is why I try to keep. This is where I get away from that. I don't need these blending. No, I hear you, and I am the same way. I mean, like I'm like you. I don't go out of my way to watch Buck Zumhoff. I'm not gonna, you know. Okay, I'm not putting this on my WCCW compilation. You know, I, I can look past it. But I, this question made me really introspect because I can watch Chris Benoit. I can watch Jimmy Snuka and not have it in the front of my mind. And so I know people who can't watch them at all, but I'm not like that because I guess I separate the two. And I was thinking well, about this. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, Snook is a little different for me because that goes into the rule where I really didn't find out too much about it until long, long, you know, until later. I, and again, I never really loved Jimmy outside of that, you know, that heel persona, um, you know, that he was with, uh, with Gordy. Uh, so I, I hated him as a face. So, but I mean, for some, you know, it's... It, I, I, I can't preach this enough. If you have your heroes in sports, don't look them up. I mean, I, here, this is the weird part. I was thinking about this. this. This question made me think. I am okay with Chris Benoit watching a Chris Benoit match. I mean, I don't approve of what he did. I think he had some brain damage going on. You can't blame 100% of what happened on that. But you can't blame zero either. Louis C.K., I can watch one of his stand-ups. I can watch his old TV show. I think he's really funny. 
I mean, what he did was bad, but it doesn't compare to what the other two two did. Bill Cosby, I cannot watch that guy ever because here's a serial rapist trying to be funny. And I mean, I used to like him when I was a kid. I liked his old sitcom from the 60s, but there's there's no way I could enjoy that guy now. It's funny. I was just reading something from Walter Lippmann about this where he said it's very difficult because Americans tend to stereotype and there's never a stereotype. There's always five inside of one, one person. It's just you, you just don't know with any of these people. It's this is why it's so, especially with artists and especially with genius artists, because most geniuses are insane to some degree. Kind of goes with the package. But you know, I'm not saying they're bad and saying some are and some aren't. But especially, like I said, especially when you have that kind of artistic creativity, it's it's just difficult. Uh, I, and where do you draw the line? Because as you were saying, and I'm not saying you're wrong either. Where you say, well, Louis C.K. and then you know, Bill. Co- Where's the, you know, where's the, where's the repulsion line, you know, for example, where, where's the, the step too far? And I'm not sure. Like I said, yours might be right, but I just, oh God, I hate having that discussion. No, I, and I hate the whole thing. You know, I, I thought I will stick to wrestling in like 30 seconds. Louis C.K. to me came across as a really good guy who happened to be extremely funny. And that's his I mean, job. Talk- yeah. I, I mean, you were talking about like, um. But yeah, I mean, you hear him on like I don't know a radio show, and he's talking about like what you know his beliefs are politically and etc. And I was like, wow, I really dig this guy. And then you know he did what he did. You know when you were talking about like don't don't learn about your heroes. Like that was probably the top time in my life I felt let down by someone who I didn't know. See, but you made the mistake of taking the leap where you're going. Okay, I hear this guy, so he must be this kind of guy. No one is this kind of guy. And then you're not, again, everyone does it. I do it. Where you sit there and you'll start and you'll automatically kind of classify the person as, oh, that's so-and-so. And And they may be, but they may be three other things to go along with it. No, and you're right. And, you know, people are complex. No one is 100% pure or whatever. But, I mean, he did that in front of two girls who worked for him. Like, that's not cool. Oh, yeah. No, no, none of it is. All right. Worst matches by, by our friend Brandon Rice. The top five worst matches y'all have ever seen and why. I know what my number one is, but I'm going to hit on the floor to you, Sean. Now, this is so hard. I went to ECW, okay? They, they were guards where you could, like, name three of the, you know, right in a row. So I had to kind of classify a little bit. So you're either looking at, do I, am I ranking on just pure stupidity? Where like, you're like, what am I, why? I'm, I'm just embarrassed to be watching this. Um, you know, the, the, oh God, why is my girlfriend have to be here today? Kind of deal as you're watching something like if Dorn shows up or a clueless booking where, you know, everything's going along well. And then they just do something moronic where it, when it just not only messes up that, but it messes up a whole bunch of other stuff. You'll understand what I'm saying when I explain it and then just in ring incompetence. So for like clueless booking would be like the war games where fled flare got his hair, uh, head smashed. That is just inexcusable. There is there is no reason for that. So I'm I'm looking at now that distracts me from everything else because that is just so stupid. In-ring incompetence, any number of Ian Axel Rotten Taipei death matches. Which have you ever seen a death match that's boring? I have a lot of them. We're usually with Ian and Axel Rotten. Oh, they're terrible. Um yeah, yeah, oh, here's one that has a special category for me. The night where the line was drawn. I seem to be alone on this one. But the uh the the funk Douglas uh, Sabu three-way dance where two of them weren't in there for half of it. 
And, oh, God, it was just so boring. It was every bad series. Like, if Brandon's picturing a funk Briscoe match, Brandon Rice is, he's picturing that three-way dance because it's exactly what that was. It was terrible. And Al Snow not winning the belt over Douglas annoyed the hell out of me. I remember that was something that was just so kind of, what are you doing? Mass transit, of course. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't know if I have five. By the way, two quick things. I actually liked the three-way dance between uh, Funks, Douglas, and Sabu. I I agree I'm biased. Yeah, then that's okay. I I didn't like it as much as people liked it when it first happened. They were like, oh, my God, five-star match, greatest thing ever. And I saw it, and I'm like, I wouldn't go five stars on this. No way. But I liked it enough. I really only have one all-time bad match. Oh, by the way, Axel Rotten story. I'm at the Louisville Gardens back in 95, and this had to have been the, the night that near riot happened. And I'm at the urinal, and who pulls up next to me but Axel Rotten, who apparently bought a ticket for the show. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, there's a match, and it's available on video. It was from the Boston Garden. It was Tony Atlas against Ted Arcidi. Not only, I mean, you've got Arcidi, who I've heard is the nicest guy in the world. I'm not saying anything bad about him personally, but he couldn't move. Okay, his his feet, he moved like he had his feet stuck in buckets of cement. Then you've got Tony Atlas, who's, you know, doesn't care anymore. And not only was the match every bit as bad as, as you'd think, it was even worse than you'd think. Then they go outside to brawl, and they're just kind of pushing each other around. And they lean against the barricade. The barricade goes backwards and, like, crushes this little kid. He's screaming. And I'm sure he got lifetime wrestling tickets out of this. But that was the worst match I've ever seen. Uh, I mean, it's just, like, there's, there's so many different categories of, you know, just... Yeah, and sometimes, some, sometimes a match is so bad it's actually entertaining. Like, I remember there was one in 75 where uh, it was... Oh, who was Lou Albano's partner? Tony Altimore against some guy who was a big name in Ohio, who uh, back in the fifties, who came in. That's him. Oh, is that terrible? But that was just again. They're both you know they were combined 170. You know at this point, and they look it. I mean, this isn't one thing where oh you know Nick Bockwinkel looks great. No, no, no. They looked it. The worst part, as bad as he looked, the worst part with Tony was he had those like fluffy gray sideburns. That like everyone's uncle in the seventies had, and like how can I take this seriously? That's like my you know my you know my ridiculous uncle. I have to go visit every Sunday. I remember the first time I saw that when it was WWF twenty four seven, and I was just like, my God, this is Madison Square Garden, people. Let's do better. All right, our friend Steve Crawford, who a former guest and a future guest, who would you rather punch in the face? Jim Hurd or Vince Russo? Sean, you box. Who would you rather let have it? I, I have a more of a pacifist attitude now than I did in my, my boxing younger days. But I, I, you know what? I'm going to say just for obnoxiousness, Russo, I think just Jim Hurd got in way over his head. And he just had no clue what he was doing. Then what do you do? Russo was different. Russo had like this bizarre plan that, that was just awful. This, you know, I'll take wrestling and turn it into something entirely different. So I'd probably be more upset about that. It may have gone in that direction anyway, but I think he did more long-term damage than Jim Hurd did. Yeah, yeah. WC, I, I have a lot. I'm not going to blame one person for WCW in the early 90s just because it was an institutional mess. 
from that point, from the time that Crockett was gone, even before then, up until the time they shut their doors, it was always they had issues with the talent. They had issues, you know, they could not communicate between the two. They never could. So it's difficult to pick out one guy. Uh, you know what? I and At the end of the day, I really don't have anything against either guy. I know a lot of people are going to be pissed at me saying that and even more pissed about my rationalization of it. Uh, I mean, Vince Russo, look, you may not have liked his vision of wrestling, but the WWF that was going on before that, no one was watching it. So, you know, he brought uh, under Vince McMahon, you know, having Vince McMahon filter his ideas. I thought they did a lot of really good stuff. Raw was always a really cool two hours in like 97, 98, 99, 2000. Jim Hurd. Of course I'm I'm biased. I'm the one throwing the punch. (laughs) True. Jim Hurd, I mean, he dirtbagged a lot of the wrestlers. I mean, you know, he totally dirtbagged Tully Blanchard. The defense of Jim Hurd is that supposedly the wrestlers dirtbagged him a couple of times before he's like, all right, you know, if this is the way we're going to play, I'll play dirty too. Supposedly, uh, Barry Windham screwed him, a couple of other guys screwed him, and then, like, the wrestlers were, you know, giggling in front of him. And, yeah, Jim Hurd is out there somewhere, and he must be like, my God, I had this job 30 years ago, I was at it for, like, two and a half years, and these people are still talking about me. Anyway... It was like aliens talking to each other. They had no idea. It was like the Tower of Babel. It wasn't even, they, they had no idea. Jim Hurd had no idea what the wrestlers were talking about. And, you know, th- vice versa. It was a complete breakdown in communication between the two sides. Uh, I, I think, you know what? I mean, I, look, I know wrestlers. They see a guy like Jim Hurd, an outsider, and they're like, you know, okay, you know, Gordon Scazzari, same thing. We're going to take advantage of this guy. I'm going to milk right. him for what he's worth, and then I'm leaving. Yeah, and you know, then then he'll have he'll take offense, but he'll take offense about the wrong thing because he's drawn. You know, he doesn't understand the initiation stuff or any you know anything that any kind of a wrestling language. He has no idea what these guys are talking about. Or I'm not talking about kayfabe. I'm just talking about the way a wrestling business is run. is completely different from the way a pizza business is run. Yeah, I mean, they just saw that they saw Hurt as a money mark coming in, and I think anyone, no matter what wrestler from that era, has whatever they have to say about Hurt. That's the truth. You saw the guy as a money mark, and you tried to milk him. Anyway. And he thought they were a bunch of pawns. I, you know, I don't, I don't even know that coming in. I think, I think the new management had good intentions at first. Okay, we're not paying you guys based on a gate and you guys trusting us with how much money this show actually made. You're going to have a salary, things like that. I mean, they oh, tried to oh, normalize. Oh, that may be true. But the, what they wouldn't do is give them like any kind of an, you know influence beyond there. That was the problem. There was no influence between the two because they didn't understand each other. It was they were working off of dis- different business practices. Yeah, totally. Wrestling was a very unique business, and they were trying to normalize it. Josh, you'll watch it live. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I mean a lot went on with Watts, but anyway, Josh Walton. Why was Terry Taylor of all people? chosen to book mid-south uh sean do you have any ideas on this and what are your thoughts yeah you've answered this before and i believe it's the same reason that eddie gilbert got the booking job back when he did uh we had you told the story i believe it was you told the story that why uh, eddie uh got the booking job and they said basically he was about to walk out to wwf yep the wwe and uh, that was they basically said i was about to give you the book and that got him to stay i think the same thing happened to taylor when was taylor the booker in mid-south do you know 
I don't, but if it happened, I'm going to guess it was probably late 85, early 86 in there. It would have to be. I mean, that's the only spot. I mean, you could not lose Terry Taylor there. No, I, I, I agree. And you know what, Josh, if you're listening, uh, go on our Facebook page. I mean, I'm not sure like what Terry Taylor did wrong as a booker. Maybe he did something. But to answer your question. That's a good stretch for them. If that was yeah. it, that's a good stretch for them, yeah. I mean, Terry Taylor, he was a college-educated guy in an era where a lot of guys did not go to college. I mean, he went to Clemson legit, and he wasn't a phys ed major just playing football. He was a real student. So, obviously, he's an intelligent guy. That works for his favor. I, I just don't see the problem with Terry Taylor as Booker. But, uh, you know, and one other thing, in this, in this era of you know, where you're getting more corporate people involved, it doesn't hurt to look like Taylor does as opposed to somebody else. Yeah, that's a really good point. And Josh, like I said, if, if we're, you know, I'm genuinely interested. What was your problem with Terry Taylor's Booker? Paul Skyvers asked, I hope I pronounced your name correctly, which woman wrestler from the 70s or 80s could match up with Charlotte Flair? Sean, you're up. None. There's, I have said how the wrestling product is different from the male men's wrestling product is different from the top of the card. Let's put it that way. Than the uh, the women's product from back then to today, but the women's is even different. It's a different like time zone. I don't even know where to, you know. It's different. It's everything about it is different. I cannot think of one female wrestler from back then who could possibly fit in today. Neither can I. And like you said, it was a completely different deal. I mean, I mean Charlotte Flair is is simply awesome. The best female wrestler, the best American female wrestler from that era is Princess Victoria. She was really, really good. And then she hurt her neck and she had to get out of the business. But if I had to vote for someone, I would vote for her. All right. Have you ever seen Charlotte Flair? Oh, yeah, I've seen. I mean, like I said, I I, I understand the point. Like Charlotte, I'm starting with like, uh, like, I want to say like Sable on right around, you know, that kind of era. There's your break where you start having like Lita and, you know, um, more of an athletic. I want to, for lack of a better word. But the, the difference between those two, a match for uh, back then, because a match, especially in the WWF, a women's match back in the 70s was very stereotypical. Oh, yeah. I mean, it I would mean, be the exact same match. I mean, it was one of those things, like, uh, when I was younger, I was pretty fast. And when I saw the women, like, pop out of the dressing room, I scrambled for the bathroom because, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to say pull drag. Yep. They're doing the, yeah, the, the hip toss, except it's like a hair toss. You know, they have that stupidity and, you know, it just, it, it was the same match. It wasn't, it just, and I'm not saying like in Japan, that's a whole different thing where it was always uh, a top notch product in, at least in New York, it really wasn't much up until, up until, and there were exceptions. Again, I've always liked Velvet McIntyre, but She's it good. really wasn't particular, but yeah, it really wasn't a great product. All right. Melvin Hurston asks, would the NWA have survived if Sam Muchnick would have been 20 years younger? And instead of retiring, remaining as an NWA board member, Sean, your thoughts on this? If Sam was 20 years younger, he would have retired 20 years younger. Uh, Sam, Sam's a smart guy. There is no coincidence that Sam got out in the times he got out. Uh, that, that's, not a, uh, that's not an accident. He, he saw the right. He's a smart guy. He saw the writing on the wall. He saw what was going on. The tip-off, as the rumbling was, the tip-off was, uh, what is it, Beck? It was uh, WTC something, but it's WTBS. When that started taking up, you know, he's gone two, three years later. 
he knew this this kind of a business product was not going to last and i think that's why he got out so i think if you ask me if he lasted 20 years younger i think he would have been smart and gotten out early it was beyond him my answer to the question i mean off my my knee-jerk reaction was nope wouldn't have mattered but then i thought about it sam mushnick might have been the one guy who had he been 20 years younger had been able to keep the NWA together to be able to use the WTBS show as a flagship show for the NWA and not have everyone going off on in different directions when Vince McMahon declared war in January 1984. He might have been. He could have done that guy. when he was there. Why did he do that when he was there? I don't think he cared enough. He was he'd been retired for two years. No, no, no. They he was president still when they started the TBS station. Yes, he was. But I mean, I'm saying, you know, maybe he tried. Uh, you know, he made overtones to McMahon all the time. And McMahon blew him off. Yeah, I, what I'm saying is, though, like, um, it, they didn't survive because they didn't have. I mean, Jim Crockett just took the NWA title over. There were uh, too many weak links in the NWA. You had too many territories that were falling apart. Yeah, and but I'm saying Mushers might have been able to help with that, or maybe he would have been able to. Okay, we'll merge. Georgia and Florida and I'll oversee it and you guys will still run it, but you know, we'll, we'll put this thing together. I mean, it's, it's possible. I'm, I don't think it's likely, but I think it's possible. I, don't I know. think Sam is way too smart to even bother with that. You know where, okay. You want to know where Sam ends up? Sam ends up in the Jim Barnett role with Vince. Uh, that is a real possibility as well. I mean, you know what? The guy, Which is where Eddie Graham would have ended up if, you know, God forbid what didn't happen, what happened. Uh, you know, that's a possibility. I mean, much Nick, you know, he's got 18 more years of money to make if he remains in the business. So I don't see him retiring, but I see him, I see him staying in the business doing what? I don't know. But anyway, Kevin Barrett, what is your favorite belt design and what is your worst? Sean? 10 pounds of gold. And I, I have a thing with, uh, with, it's not the belt, but it's the strap. I love the red strap for some reason. There's just something about the old red strap. I would say, but I would say the 10 pounds of gold and I would say, uh, I also like the old U.S. belt. Okay, the one with the Magnum TA one? Uh, I like that, but I like the other one with the one with the actual. The, I know I've been converted on this one because I always thought that was terrible. And then I'll, I'm kind of looking at it again. I like it now. So, yeah, I would say that. Also, I always, I always like the, uh, the green and um, intercontinental belt because I always associate that with my, my, you know, my youth. <laughs> okay. I, uh, a lot of people don't like it. I like I love that United States title belt that has the outline of the United States, yep. the one that they had in the late 70s. The, the Mulligan Blackjack, title, yeah. Blackjack Mulligan, Paul Jones, Ric Flair, et cetera, title. That's a favorite of mine. The, uh, my, my number one favorite is, once again, 10 pounds of gold. I bought a book that is nothing but pictures of this thing. I like it so much. I would stare at it as a child trying to figure out what the plates were on the sides what countries were being represented. It took me like a year to get the right picture of that. So I knew all four. It's the Stanley cup of wrestling. (laughs) Yeah, really? And the worst, I mean, I'm sure there are just absolutely horrible belt designs out there. Although there's one other one. I like the world championship wrestling TV title, not the Tully Blanchard, Dusty Rhodes one, but the Ronnie Garvin, Jake Roberts one where the plate said like ABC, NBC and CBS. That cracked me up and i like the, oh, the design Georgia of the one yeah okay yeah oh here's another one for the worst i hated the uh the mid-south tv medallion i kind of liked it believe it or not 
It was something different. I would say the worst, and this is this might upset some people, and again, I'm going to show some bias, is the great, the big Goldie, that giant belt Ric Flair came out with one day in the beginning of 86, and I was just like, what the hell, you got rid of that belt for this gaudy looking thing? I, I never dug it. Now we know what happened to uh, Stan Hansen, the uh, Stan Hansen AWA belt. Yeah, oh, yeah. It ended up in, Rick got it. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm with, I, I tell you that, that this is going to be a bias thing because from people who started watching wrestling from 87 on, they're going to say big Goldie from people who started watching wrestling from like me, you, and before we're going to say the 10 pounds of gold. Okay. Chris Tabar, friend of the show, former and yep. future guest, two feds you want to see more of one domestic, one international. The idea is, Hey, I really need to see more of these guys. You mean that's current? Uh, n- probably no, no historic. Okay. Uh, and again, it's, uh, I've given kind of this, this list in the past, but, um, I would say early sixties, San Francisco, the, uh, I would say early seventies, Florida, which just look at that roster. It's shocking. Uh, it's like, a, it's, you, you have a bunch of former world champions, future world champions. Um, uh, and I like mid seventies, uh, Memphis. It just had a great vibe. They kind of, you know, that was, you know, when Jerry really had it going on. Especially 74. Uh, internationally, I, I'm just, I have not seen enough old Japan period. So anything. Um, and as far as, I, I'd like to see the atomic duo in Mexico, but I know nothing exists. Okay. I, sir, I have answered this before. I mean, uh, domestically, the very start of Bill Watts taking over the tri-state, going, uh, going through Mid-South, um, you know, the only stuff that's really available is, is like the late 1981. I mean, I saw 1980. I knew how great it was. I And, I, you know, I laugh at myself. Here we are in the middle of a pandemic. We're all locked in and there's no sports. And I still cannot find the time to purchase New Japan World and watch some of that stuff. But I probably need to get on that. And the answer would be New Japan. They had in the 70s and a little in the 60s. I thought they had, from what I've seen, better workers than the, their all-Japan contemporaries. But anyway, Brian Crawley, hey, we're talking about him. What should the NWA have done after Heard fired Flair? Sean, what do you think? Get in the fetal position and cry. Uh, there was really, I don't think there was going to be any difference. Again, um, you had major institutional problems. Flair was probably just going to you know, make the crap smell a little nicer. It was such a – the whole thing was just institutionally a mess at this point. Um, they, again, he probably did him a favor by firing him. Uh, yeah. I mean, Flair I, <laughs> Flair, I know, was re- really unhappy towards the end. I mean, I remember get, – Spartacus. Get oh, yeah. Flair wasn't doing that. <laughs> I mean, talk about a guy, you know, her who's just not getting it. Flair was a guy who – let me backtrack a little bit. I want to say November, maybe October or December. I'm I'm going to say November 90. I start getting word that it's becoming a real possibility that Dusty is going to leave the WWF, go back to WCW and become the booker again. And it was like, oh, my God, you know, everyone's going to freak. And it happened. And I was on the phone with Dave Meltzer and we were both like, if this happens, how long do you think Ric Flair is going to last there? And we both guessed around a year, and it wasn't even a year. 
I mean, I know, you know, I have heard through people who know him that Rick was terribly unhappy with this decision. And, you know, so, but anyway, to, to answer his question, you know, and this is going to sound crazy. Okay. I remember hearing, and it was, it was, it was coming to a slow boil. I mean, Rick was having problems with her. He was having problems with Dusty in the spring. I remember when Rick quit as Booker, it really looked like he was on his way out. And he, he was obviously, but I remember when I first started hearing about it, I was like, you know what? Rick Flair and this company need a break from each other. And it was, you know, people thought it was crazy when I said at the time, it kind of was crazy when I said at the time, because I went to the Baltimore bash in 91 and before the show, Gary Capetta announced that Ric Flair, you know, was no longer at the company and the place went nuts booing. They already knew. And there was a really loud We Want Flair chant that went out. And it went out before the cameras started rolling. So it was pretty brilliant on their part. But, I mean, I thought Rick and WCW needed a break from each other. I think Rick kind of set a weird ceiling. Like, no one was going to get more over than Ric Flair when Ric Flair was there. But Rick's ceiling was starting to go down as he as he became older. And I was like, okay, you know, now there was there was already rumors that Rick Rude was coming in. You know, this is how you get Sting over by getting Ric Flair out of the way. But to answer the question, what would I have done had, you know, after Ric Flair left? I mean, I would have tried to make the most out of the talent that I had. And they had a lot of talent. They had Sting. They had Luger. They had the Steiners. They had Terry Taylor. They had plenty of guys at Barry Windham. They had plenty of guys that just didn't know what to do with them. And, you know, like I said, just, just go on without them. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, you have no choice. Um, and that's pretty much what they did. But again, you, the problem wasn't the talent. The problem was just that there was just no communication. There was no cohesion. Like they would end up. That's why you could never beat the WWF because no one else had that cohesion that they did. Okay. Dan Potts asks, who do you wish had been given a chance to book WCW that didn't? Sean, what are your thoughts? I'm rethinking my answer now because I originally said Jerry Jarrett because I, I think Jerry has a reasonably good skill about kind of, you know, bringing people together. Um, I'm thinking you need somebody uh, – you, you have to have somebody with some kind of uh, – I, I would have tried to swipe somebody from the WWF at this point because – just so I just needed somebody with corporate experience because you need somebody to relate the corporate to the wrestler because that's the one thing you're getting killed. That's why you bring in Bill Watts, and that's why I'm worried if you bring in Jerry Jarrett, the same thing's going to happen because they could deal with the wrestlers, but they can't deal with the office. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, off the top of my head, I said Eddie Gilbert. I thought, you know, around 88, I was, you know, voicing my opinion that WCW or Crockett at the time should have let Dusty go as Booker and brought in Eddie Gilbert. But here's the problem. Is Ric Flair just going to do what Eddie Gilbert tells him to do? Is Dusty Rhodes just going to do what Eddie Gilbert tells him to do? Is Arn Anderson, especially since Flair has his back? So my answer... Actually, how about this? Uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say um, Jim Barnett. Um, Not I, as a Booker, but like as an executive director, and then he would bring in the Booker. But he would be that piece between the corporate and the wrestling. All right, that makes sense. The problem the problem is, you know, given his relationship with McMahon, can you trust the guy? I mean, like I said, Eddie Gilbert had great ideas. Paulie Dangerously had great ideas. The problem is Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, etc. They're not going to listen to those guys. I think the guy you had to bring in 
was Bill Watts. And I think towards the end of, yeah, I, I think I know towards the end of 87, I was saying that, look, you know, Dusty had had his run. You know, he was being becoming less and less effective every day. Bill Watts has only been out of the business for less than a year. You know, do what you need to get him in there. I mean, Dusty, when he was at Mid-South, he did what he was asked to do, including jobs. But again, you're running into the same problem because Bill had no Bill was the worst of the bunch when it comes to communicating with with the office. Uh, You know, it's that's that's the issue is that you don't have that contact. You needed you needed that bridge that they never had. And Bill Bill just made the situation worse because he was more of that kind of a wrestling mind. Now, if you want to give me Bill Watts with Jim Barnett ahead of him to deal with the office. okay, now I'm interested. Um, I was thinking more like Bill Watts reporting directly to Jim Crockett the way Dusty did. Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. On that case, yes. Okay. You're talking before the, the takeover came over. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think he would have succeeded under that scenario. From what I understand, there was talk of Watts coming in a couple of times, like 89, 90, 91. And Watts would always say the same thing. Look, I want to report directly to Ted Turner. I'm not reporting to Jim Hurd. And that was a deal breaker. But as far as like 90s WCW goes, I, I don't think there was a booker in the world that could have helped that product. I, like you said, internally, that company was such a mess. A booker is not going to be a difference maker at all. Yeah, it's uh, you needed a, that was that piece that was missing. I'm trying to think Barnett's the closest thing I could think of who would have had experience with both. Maybe and he was so bitter at this point. I was like, maybe Roy Shire kind of a person. But you needed somebody who had, you know, who could deal with a corporate aspect. Even Shire was, you know, had had that kind of Bill Watts attitude to him. So that would have been an issue. But I can't think of anybody else outside of like maybe like a Fred Kohler. But he's been dead for years. Actually, this is probably someplace where uh, Sam Mushtick would have fit in uh, beautifully as like an executive director. Uh, Sam was too old. I saw Sam in 1990 and he was just too old and frail. I know, but I mean, that's the type of person you need who can work both ends. And in wrestling, there were not a lot of guys who who could do that corporate. That's kind of why they were wrestlers, part of the reason. Yeah, really. I mean, part of the problem with WCW after the Turner takeover is that, you know, they had very linear management. You know, they had production people telling the wrestling people what to do, and that never works. Christian Body, friend of the show, been a former guest, and he will be back. If you could book... One promotion or territory, which would it be, and what would be the time period? Sean, you you answer first. I would say late 60s, early 70s, Florida. It's like a who's who. You have everybody there. You have Johnny Valentine. You have Bastine. You have a, a young, uh, you have the Funks there. You have uh, young Jack Frisco. Jerry's coming up pretty soon. Uh, you have uh, Rhodes and Murdoch. Paul Jones, when he was great. Buddy Colt, who was great. Eddie and uh, Mike, I, you, you just had talent. Ron, uh, Ron Fuller was there at this point. Um, and as we were talking about Bill Watts, that's, I mean, there's just so much talent and you have kind of Eddie Graham, you know, kind of overseeing the operation. That looks like a, a, a fun place to, the only problem is, is there almost too much talent, but that's why it's good to have Eddie Graham above. All right. Good answer. My answer is give me the AWA on January 1st, 1987, or 1986. You know what? 87. Give me the AWA. I'm taking this challenge. 
even if January 1st, 88, give me the AWA. I'm on ESPN. I still have a decent syndicated package. And yeah, the pay not, might not be good, but I can give the wrestlers exposure. And I'm the kind of person, like, you know, I watch wrestling. I know who's good. I know who I like and who to bring in. And maybe, you know, try to get Kerry Von Eric up there at a TV taping. So, hey, I've got stars on my television. That sort of thing. Give I take that challenge of, you know, not trying to beat Vince, not trying to be bigger than even JCP, but a viable television product that you're going to want to see every week. Give me I take that challenge. Give me a time machine. I do not need the ulcer. That is going to come with that job. Yeah, I'm climbing that mountain, man. I'm 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 going to take a, a promotion that is completely broken. That's what I want. A promotion that is completely broken, but it has something like that ESPN spot. It has the tradition. Get out of my way. I'm taking this on. That's my answer. Nick Bizance, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, should Bob Backlund have had a longer run with the title as heel, Mr. Backlund? Sean, what are your thoughts? Absolutely. You bet. First of all, Bob could actually, you know, even then work. It was something different. And it had that wild. I would actually tone it down a little bit, but it almost had that kind of in a toned down aspect, that Wahoo feel to it, where it makes sense. He's a heel, but you understand why? You understand where the anger is coming. You may not agree, but you understand where that anger is coming from. And that adds a level of realism to a product that didn't have any of it at this point. That may have been your problem is that you had like a real character. It would have been one of those things like the Magical Mystery Tour, one of those Beatles movies where you have the Beatles going through a cartoon, you know, like a real person and, you know, with Repo Man and everything else going on. But yes, I would give him a shot because I thought the guy was over. I thought they cut it off too fast. Uh, I'm not saying give him the belt for four years, but I, there was no reason to do it as fast as they did. I, I think they could have gotten something out of that and gotten some guys over. Okay. I, I, in my opinion, no. I mean, I said on a very recent show that the biggest shock of my wrestling fandom was Bob Backlund winning the title in 1994. Or was it 93? I don't remember. Uh, but if someone had told me back in 1988, oh, yeah, Bob Backlund's going to get the WF, WF title, like I would have had them institutionalized. I personally did not like the heel Bob Backlund character. I mean, it made me laugh sometimes, but I thought it was too goofy. I thought Bob was the wrong guy to bring back and give that large a role to. But I, and I also, I did not. A lot of people like that Survivor Series match between Bret Hart and Bob Backlund. And it's like, look, I, I, I respect that. And I am not someone who needs a bunch of high spots in a match to enjoy it. But I personally thought that match was leadenly boring. And I thought what they did was smart. They, you, you got the, the title switch on the Survivor Series and the next Madison Square Garden show, which I believe was five days later. The guy you are going to push as your new superstar, Diesel, wins the title from Backland. How'd that work? Like, uh, not well. Nothing worked in 94. Yeah. That's I what mean, I'm saying. I, again, I, I think that contrast between what – and again, I agree with you. They went too far. They, they made Bob them. I was hoping Bob would be, you know, them, him, but they, you know, they brought Bob to the dark side and they turned him into a clown. I thought if you could have had Bob enraged, but not goofy, I think that would have been very effective. 
Yeah, it, it would have, and it's the same thing uh, as far as why didn't Diesel get over as WWF champion? It's because it's the WWF. They couldn't get away from doing dumb, goofy stuff. Here, I'm picture, just- picture this kind of anger. This uh, Bob Backlund, but Steve Austin, uh, 96 anger. Just, I hate everybody. You guys are killing, you know, whatever. This is what you would understand it. I mean, yeah. And, but you know what? Like a lot of people are going to be down on me saying this. I could see where the WWF was coming from putting the belt on Kevin Nash. Cause they just did the angle where he split off from Michaels. He was a huge guy. He's legit seven feet tall. Former Tennessee Volunteers basketball player, everyone. That's for real. He was a bodybuilder. He was a good-looking guy. Uh, uh, what could go wrong? <laughs> By giving him bad scripts and bad angles. I think that's more it than, than Nash, to be honest with you. I'll tell uh, you. I, 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 he, was, he was fine. I mean, I just, I don't know. I, maybe you're right. Maybe he was the guy. It was a bad error and nothing was going to work. I just think they, they were getting, as you said, they were getting too goofy. Unfortunately, they dragged Bob with him, and they made him just as goofy. That was part of the problem. Is It was it was a cartoon. No, it was the WWF. That's, that's just how they booked everything. I'll tell you what. I've got a couple of extra minutes. I am going to answer a question that was thrown up on our Facebook group by Brian Crawley. Sean, could Zooks have worked as a babyface friend of Hogan? Is he stepping into the ring? Yes, he is. No. I don't want to see him in the ring ever again. I mean, there's just no need for that. As like a, you know, maybe, okay, maybe I guess in like a Mr. T limited six-man tag team, he's in there for 10 seconds roll. Yes. I do not want to see him in a singles match on the top of the card. Oh, no, you could not do that. They had to hide him in a tag team with Randy Savage when they actually used him. And hiding him in a tag team with Hulk Hogan doesn't work as well as hiding him in a tag team with Savage. But guess what? Not only do I think it would have worked, I would have done it. I was saying this back in 89 that they were making a a mistake having Hogan's opponent in the movie as a heel. I thought, you know, let's be honest, wrestling the WWF was desperate for a superstar babyface. No, he couldn't work, and he really wasn't a wrestler, but he had a great look. They could have had a... Yeah. Uh, uh, Hold think- on, no, 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 no. He couldn't work? He made Mr. T look like Luthez. <laughs> you could get away with him doing his spots, though. Yeah, I would say if you have, like, a, a, a 16... Remember those old 16-man tag team matches that, you know, they were always on the most unusual match, VHS or beta tape? That's what you need for him. And then have him come in for like 10 seconds and get him out. Yeah. I mean, but it's the WWF. It's not like anyone's paying attention to work rate. I think the kids. They pushed Gonzalez, so why not? The kids would have eaten him up as a baby face because he had that look. And again, the the WWF needed a black baby face. I thought he would have been great in that role. Of course, someone's going to say, yeah, don't use him at all. But I mean, like you said, special appearance, hide him in a six man tag team. You know, obviously you can't have him out there forever. And then he can be the, uh, the, the protector of Max Cherry from Jackie Brown. That was a movie. You want to use him? Use him in the way that they used uh, Ray Trailer in the beginning of his career. Use him that way. I could see that, but you know, here's the thing. I don't know what this guy's other options were outside the WWF. I mean, I didn't see him in anything. So would he have taken that role? I don't know, but it, he would have been good at it, actually. 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He had a great look. It would have been like 911. I mean, he's a perfect example of Paul's genius. The guy was absolutely useless. But hey, he can walk to the ring, hold somebody up, and drop him. Nah, and we have the answer. Steven Piccarillo, he was a working actor. He wasn't going to do tag matches in Topeka. Okay, Steve, thank you. That answers my question. If he's a SAG member, he's not going to be doing, you know, what the WWF wrestlers do. So I'll tell you what, this is going to wrap up this edition of Stick to Wrestling. And I'm going to not only wrapping up the show, but we're wrapping up an era because I have some really bad news for everyone. And that is that this is Sean Goodwin's last show as the convivial co-host. And Sean, you can back this up. We have not had any kind of a falling out whatsoever. There's nothing bad going on. We just couldn't find a common scheduling time to record the show. And I'm bummed out that you're leaving, but you're not leaving for good. You will be invited as a guest. I can't wait to have you on. And rather than focus on the negative of Sean leaving, and it is a negative, I want to focus on the positive. We have been doing this since March 2018. As of today, we have done 105 shows. Not many podcasts get through all of that without something being changed. And Sean, I think I, on part of you know, everyone in the group, everyone listening, we all owe you a great big thank you for everything you've done for this show. You deserve a standing ovation. I want everyone to go to the Facebook group and give Sean a virtual hug and, and tell him how grateful you are to his contribution. Sean, say goodbye as the co-host, however you want to do it. I'll consider myself so, 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 so. <laughs> the man, man, man. I, honestly, like I said, we've always told you the truth, and the honesty was this. With the, uh, the pandemic... John's uh, work schedule had gotten crazy. So what there, I guess what we're going to be doing from now on is that, and I'll, I'll be one of them, but we will be having just kind of John with, you know, you know, John and friends, I guess would be the word for it. And again, we, I don't think we've had an argument the entire, you know, almost two years we've done this. It has been a pleasure. It has been, you know, I thank all you guys. It has been much, you know, bigger than I ever thought it was going to be. And that's thanks to everybody there. I thank John for the opportunity. And yeah, there is no hard feelings whatsoever. This was just a scheduling thing that could not be overcome. And I thank everybody for the opportunity. It has been great. All right. Well, thank, thank you again, Sean. Thank you for, and I'm, I'm sincere. This isn't an, an on air. Thank you. This is it from the heart. Thank you very much. And that wraps it up. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does. You can follow me on Twitter. Just put in the words, John McAdam and, follow the guys who are fighting with chairs. I don't always stick to wrestling, but hopefully I'm somewhat entertaining. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Stay safe, everyone. Stay safe.